I'm Beth Galetti, the Senior Vice President of HR at Amazon. I've been here a little over seven years, and in that time, Amazon has gone through significant growth, creating challenges and opportunities for how we maintain our innovative culture. With me today is Steven Brozovic. Steven, can you introduce yourself? Thanks, Beth. Hi, my name is Steven Brozovic. I'm a principal evangelist with AWS HR. I've been with Amazon for a little over 21 years. I started out in technology, but I've spent the last eight years really focused on culture, thinking about what it takes for us to remain a day one company, innovative and driving to solve long-term customer problems. So today we're gonna to cover what a day one culture means at Amazon. We'll also take a look at the signs of a day two culture and how we at Amazon ensure that it always stays day one here for us and for our customers. So what is a day one culture? A day one culture at Amazon starts with always being customer obsessed. We think it has many aspects, but it definitely starts there. In addition to that, we think that it requires high velocity decision-making, high quality decision-making. It's a real focus in order to deliver for our customers. And then we also think it's really important to be experimental and disruptive, thinking big for new ideas and new innovations that may change the way the world works and give us new opportunities to deliver for our customers. So let's start with talking about what it means to be customer obsessed. So we refer to a day one culture as one that is absolutely customer obsessed. It's agile, it's innovative, and it has the right mechanisms and the operating models that enable it to make high quality, high judgment decisions at speed and for us at scale. There are certainly many other ways that companies can approach innovation and scaling. You can focus on your competitors. You can invent new technologies. You can innovate around business models or, or other approaches. But at Amazon, we've chosen to center our approach on our customers. We do this because, as Jeff Bezos said in his 2017 shareholder letter to customers, customers are always divinely discontent and will always want something better. Yesterday's wow quickly becomes today's ordinary. If you create a culture that pushes itself to look for new ways to delight customers every single day in all parts of your business, it will drive you to invent on their behalf. So one of the challenges that we faced with our growth has been how to keep that innovation going. And when we think about that, we, we start with our customers, we work backwards, and what that means for us is we want to be as close as we possibly can to our customers and we recognize that those people closest to our customers are the best people to give us insights and make decisions on what to do for those customers. So we dive deep into customer experiences, customer pain points, and we work to invent on our customer's behalf, not just do what they ask us to do or what their current problem of today is, but we work to invent on their behalf to identify solutions that will create a surprising and delightful customer experience to address their issues that they know of now or maybe haven't even thought of yet. By taking this approach, it reduces our time to market, it reduces our cost of experimentation, and it also reduces the risk of failure in rapidly meeting our customers' needs. But when it comes to innovation, it isn't just about what you can do today quickly to get it right out into the market. We have to think long-term when we're innovating for our customers and we don't want to allow the constraints of today, whether they be dependencies or resource constraints, to constrain our thinking. So we're constantly looking for what would be best, what is the ideal solution. With that in mind, we won't accept a minimum viable product 
as V1 to go out to our customers. We expect our teams to deliver a minimum lovable product so that we're actually finding something that hits that delight for our customers right when it goes out. So we use mechanisms to do this. And one of the most important mechanisms that we have at Amazon are our leadership principles. Now, many companies have leadership principles or missions and, and such that they follow. And it may surprise you to see at Amazon, we actually have 14 leadership principles. When I first arrived at Amazon, it surprised me. And I wondered if they were just things that you see on the wall or maybe just show up in, in publications or websites. But the reality is at Amazon, our leadership principles are embedded in absolutely everything we do. All of our actions, all of our meetings, all of our processes around our talent and the inventions that we're doing for customers. You'll hear us talk about those leadership principles every single day. So you see 14 of them here. I show them to you almost thinking of them as the DNA of our culture. And they really do show up that way. I was surprised when I joined Amazon to quickly realize that you don't have to memorize our leadership principles. They're just what we're doing every day. And I think if you were to meet any Amazonian, they could pretty quickly highlight uh, their favorite leadership principles and call out just about all of them on a quick recall. So when I look at our leadership principles, uh, a lot of people ask us, is there a certain order about them? Is there a certain reason that you have them presented in the way that you do? And the, the short answer to that is no, except customer obsession shows up as our number one, our top leadership principle. Customer obsession is that leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. Although leaders pay attention to competitors, they obsess over customers. With every leadership principle that we, we designed, we were very attentive to every single word in them. And this one is no exception. So when you see things like customer trust, it couldn't be more important to us and obsessing over our customers. So for us, this is how we start our foundation of how we think. Start with that customer working backwards. And then let me show you how that we may combine that with a few of our other leadership principles. Another one of my favorites is our bias for action. Speed matters in business. Many decisions and actions are reversible and do not need extensive study. And we value calculated risk-taking. We know that it's critical when you're delivering for customers to be fast. If you aren't fast enough, someone will beat you to it and they will earn that customer's trust and earn that customer's uh, loyalty for the long term. So we have to be nimble in our decision-making. We have to do risk-taking, calculated risk-taking, and we apply that in how we approach our business problems and our innovations. But there's a real clue in here about how to do that in a way that enables speed. So that clue is in the words, many decisions and actions are reversible. So reversible is an interesting concept. When you think about uh, how you make decisions, there's many types of decisions that we all make. One type we would call a one-way door decision is a decision that you really need to be right about because once you take that decision, it's really hard to turn back. Big decisions, perhaps investment in hardware design and, and development, it's once you've made those critical design decisions and you've started manufacturing, it's really hard to go backwards. But then there's a lot of decisions, and I would argue most of the decisions we make in business actually are reversible. And so there's many decisions where you can try something, you can experiment, 
You can take the risk of failure. And by taking that risk of failure, if you do fail, you just walk back through that door. It's a two-way door. You go right back the other way. You take your learnings from the failure, you apply them, and then you make hopefully better decisions in the future. We like to say that when we're teaching our leaders, we expect you to make decisions with about 70% of the data that you might need to make that decision. If you wait, or 70% of the information and data, if you wait till you have 90% or 100%, it's true that your decision may be a little bit more accurate, but you might have been way too slow and others may have already progressed ahead of you in that. So we expect to look at about 70% of the information. Of course, if we have more, we'll take it. We take those decisions and especially those reversible two-way door decisions. We learn, sometimes we fail, and then uh, we make adjustments and try to make things better for our customers. So one additional element I would share with you about being a day one culture is being disruptive having an openness to being disruptive, even when it comes to your own business. And this is one that uh, really shows up in, in Amazon and in the ways that we've, we've tried things and we've experimented. And we certainly don't always get it right, but we find it creates a lot of opportunities. So here at Amazon, we hire builders. We hire people who really like to invent. They want to build the future and they wanna look at different customer experiences and assess what's wrong with them and then iterate on them or reinvent them entirely. You people who get and understand that getting to that launch, getting to that V1, that's the starting line. That's not the finish line. So iteration is super important to what we do. So we bring these builders in and then we need to empower the builders. We empower these builders so that they can truly build, so they can invent things that have never been done before. There's no playbook to their jobs. They are definitely doing things that uh, are completely unique and new. We ask them to think big, not be constrained in their thinking by whatever resources or other constraints they might face, and instead find that ideal customer solution. So you've heard a lot about our day one culture here and some of the mechanisms that we have used to help us stay customer obsessed, keep ourselves making those high quality decisions at speed, and stay experimental and disruptive. I'll now hand it over to Stephen, and he'll talk to you about the challenges that Amazon and other companies face as we grow and the pressure that creates on remaining day one, keeping that culture. Thanks, Beth. Now that we've spent some time looking at aspects of day one culture, it's natural to ask the question, what does day two look like? In his 2018 letter to shareholders, Jeff Bezos gave his opinion. He said, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating painful decline, followed by death. Now, Jeff's statement isn't idly provocative. A company in today's world must be hypervigilant, remain customer focused, and stave off practices that hamper its ability to rapidly innovate. A day two culture and mentality doesn't simply happen overnight. As a company grows over time, there is often a need to adjust its approach to effectively manage an organization at scale. As you make these adjustments, elements of a day two culture may creep in slowly and manifest in different ways. One of those symptoms of day two culture is an increase in short-term thinking. Long-term thinking is important for day one cultures. The focus on the long-term gives us room to try lots of different solutions, to be patient with failure, and to iterate as we learn about our customers and our business. Many companies start out with a bold long-term vision. They see an opportunity to disrupt the status quo, to build something bigger and better than what currently exists. 
or they identify a problem that no one else is solving and seek to solve it in a new and better way. The mission is clear, and there's a lot of energy and activity that can be connected directly to that mission. Now, as the organization matures, it's natural to introduce structure, to try to measure what we're doing, to get an assurance that we're working on the right things. That's good. We should do that. But what often happens is that we start to organize our efforts around things that are more directly measurable, which aren't necessarily the same set as those that will help us deliver on the long term. Now, instead of focusing on delivering value to the customer over the long term, we become focused on internal metrics like margins, productivity, and revenue targets. This gets even harder when the company goes public. All too often, the activity shifts focus from those harder to measure things like long-term customer delight to short-term targets that keep shareholders happy. There's still a lot of activity. Everybody's really busy, but more and more of that activity is centered around shorter-term objectives, and it becomes harder to connect individual activity to long-term objectives. We're no longer focused on the very thing we set out to accomplish. Day one companies have to find a way to maintain long-term perspective while continuing to respond to the short-term needs of the customer. Short-term thinking also has a direct impact on the ability to invent. Environments that are focused on short-term objectives are less tolerant of mistakes. We don't leave room for the iteration that's necessary to test an idea. In fact, we tend to deprioritize experimentation in favor of those initiatives that have a direct impact on short-term goals. Other symptoms of day two thinking tend to appear as the company grows. Growth itself does not necessarily lead to a day two culture, but the actions we take to cope with growth can make the problem worse. One side effect of growth is increased organizational complexity. We add more and more layers and specialization to manage with the expanded scope of the business. We create layers of abstraction so we can manage effectively across the growing portfolio. A growing customer base requires this kind of growth. But there are two kinds of pressure that this growth puts on our organization. First, we tend to slow down in our decision making. The business is more complex, and the cost of a mistake often increases as the business grows. To mitigate the risk of a mistake, our natural tendency is to create oversight on decisions by creating policies or requiring sign-off by senior leaders. That tendency comes from a good place. Perhaps we experienced a problem and we don't want to repeat that mistake. So we put a policy in place to prevent that mistake from happening twice. That's good. We should do that. But the problem is that we then tend to take that policy or process and spread it across the entire control surface of the organization. And now the quickest we can make any decision is the sum of all of those policies we've put in place. And when we slow down too much, we miss the customer opportunity. To stay a day one company, we have to find a way to de-risk the business while empowering people at every level of the organization to make as many decisions on their own as possible. Adding layers to the organization can have another negative consequence. It moves senior leadership farther and farther away from their initial source of inspiration, the customer. We rely on senior leadership to provide strategic direction, but all too often in day two companies, that direction isn't grounded in the reality of day-to-day -day customer experience. To stay a day one company, we have to find a way to hear directly from customers and incorporate that information into our strategic plans. Unless our plans are informed by this direct customer information, we run the risk of making decisions that seem right for the business, but don't actually benefit the customer in any way. As the company grows and becomes more complex, we often introduce processes that help us manage the business and drive repeatable outcomes. 
We find ways to measure inefficiencies and work to drive them out of the system. Again, that's good. We should do that. But the problems come when we're spending more time focused on the efficiency of the process than we are on its effectiveness. Are we measuring the customer impact? How much of this work that we're doing is actually generating value to the customer by lowering prices, increasing the reliability of the solutions they depend on, or adding functionality that makes their lives better? Day two companies become obsessed with process. Day one companies create process, but the key metrics they use to test whether or not the process is working are grounded in the direct impact to the customer. Now, as I mentioned earlier, no one sets out to intentionally become a day two company. But from our experience, good intentions aren't enough to prevent that from happening. Instead, we have to deploy mechanisms to fight against the pull of day two practices that are the natural consequences of growth and maturity as a business. We define mechanisms as a complete process that reliably converts inputs into outputs and improves itself over time. All complete mechanisms have some sort of tool at their core. That tool could be a process, a meeting, or a piece of software. The tool does the heavy lifting of transforming the input into the output. But absent the other parts of the mechanism, that's all it is. The existence of the tool isn't sufficient to solve the ongoing problem. The second part of the mechanism is adoption. In order for the mechanism to work, somebody has to do something. You need users to buy into the need for the tool, to know how to use it, and to be able to provide feedback to improve the tool over time. But even if you've created the tool and people are actively using it, you won't know whether it's working properly or not unless you're measuring the performance of the tool, its level of adoption, and whether you're actually achieving the results you want on an ongoing basis. That's where inspection comes in. Most mechanisms generate a set of metrics that allow the mechanism owner and stakeholders to know how well the system is working. We also think that it's necessary to step back from time to time and evaluate how effective that mechanism is as a whole, what we could do to improve its reliability and ease of use, and whether we've actually solved the problem, automated the root cause, and no longer need to use the mechanism. That's where the concept of iteration comes into play. We apply this mechanism framework to recurring problems all over Amazon. Some of our mechanisms drive operational efficiency. They increase safety. They reduce defects. And some of our mechanisms help us be intentional in combating day two thinking. They help us focus on the long term, help us stay connected to customers, and set us up for rapid experimentation and iteration. One mechanism that we use that helps us focus on solving long-term customer problems is a process we call working backwards. Now, I have to say, it's not the only way you can build products. A lot of companies start by looking at their capabilities, then deciding what to build based on what they think they can offer customers. We choose to work backwards from customers' needs, even if we don't currently have the capability to solve that problem. We start by writing a press release as if the product has already launched. We're envisioning a world one to two years in the future where the customers are actually now using the product. What would they say? How would they react and respond? How good of a job is it actually doing? Is it making their life better? Is it really solving that particular customer problem? I get one page to tell a convincing story. If we can't clearly articulate the customer benefit in one page, we haven't thought clearly enough to start working. As we write this press release, we start to build out a set of frequently asked questions. What questions would a customer naturally ask about the big idea? And what questions would a business owner ask after reading the press release? And by the way, if there's that really uncomfortable question you hope nobody asks you about your press release or your big idea, you put it front and center in the FAQ. 
We may not have an answer to that question yet, but we know we have to resolve the answer before we can move forward with the product. The third component of working backwards is a rough visualization of the customer experience. The visuals exist to communicate the end-to-end -end customer experience, helping add detail where words cannot. We do all of this before we start any development work, before we've actually invested any budget, because we find it's easier to walk away from a bad idea that's still on paper. It's a low-cost way to identify bad ideas and allows us to refine our thinking and focus on that long-term customer problem. We want to make sure that that's where we're spending our energy and not on a problem that's going to temporarily affect our financial numbers. We use this working backwards process extensively, not just for externally facing products, but even for internal product development. We write press releases before we take on big initiatives to test the quality of our thinking. And we truly do start from the customer and work backwards. While PRFAQs help us launch products and services that are customer obsessed, we also need to ensure we remain close to the customer to get a clear picture of their needs. Sometimes customers' needs are clear. They'll tell you directly when there's a problem. But even when we don't hear directly from customers, we have to do what we can to anticipate their needs. One example of this is our focus on the amount of time it takes for one of our web pages to load. Customers may never call and complain, but we know that slow pages make for a frustrating user experience. So we get ahead of that problem by measuring and optimizing page load speed. We use that approach across all of our businesses, using metrics to help us detect problems our customers might never call us about before they ever get a chance to create a negative customer experience. Another customer-focused mechanism is a program called Customer Connection, where business leaders spend time with frontline customer service associates. This allows them to hear firsthand from the people who take care of our customers every day and learn about the pain points and opportunities those customers experience. These senior leaders can then dive deep into use cases to help solve the root cause of recurring issues and think big about winning solutions that will drive a better customer experience. As much as we use data to drive decisions, the anecdotes we gather from these frontline experiences often show us problems that don't show up in the aggregated data. Issues that might be treated as mathematical outliers in other organizations help us continually refine our metrics and drive us to even higher standards. The more we learn about the customer, the more inspired we are to build. In AWS, we can trace 90% of what we build back to specific customers that had an idea or a problem that one of our product managers, account managers, or engineers identified and worked on to make a reality. Like many companies, Amazon also employs hackathons to combat business as usual thinking. Amazon hackathons vary in duration and purpose. Some run a few hours, but the most common format is a day-long competition where people team up to invent and quickly prototype solutions to enduring problems, or find novel ways to use existing systems and data. Hackathons not only generate new ideas, but they provide a sense of customer-centric community for participants. Now, after we've identified an enduring customer problem or opportunity, we then have the challenge of building a solution that will meet those needs over the long term. And this is where large organizational structures often get in the way. The approach we've taken helps us counteract organizational inertia by empowering small, highly autonomous teams to own the problem end to end. It's a concept we call the two pizza team. Teams need to be small enough to be fed by two large pizzas. The concept is fundamentally around creating a little startup of around five to 10 people and providing them the right conditions and resources so that each team has ownership and autonomy. 
and a deep single-threaded focus in one area. These decentralized autonomous teams are empowered to develop and launch based on what they learn from interactions with customers. A two-pizza team also has the right resources embedded in the team itself, from product design to engineering, all with a very tight charter and well-defined mission so they can run as fast as possible in one area. The team creates its own metrics and KPI to help them be reactive and proactive to their customers' needs. Now, a two-pizza team isn't really about size as much as it is about pushing ownership and autonomy down to the team level. Rather than expanding team size as demands for the product or service grows, we split teams into separate two-pizza teams to work on a single-threaded sub-area. Ultimately, our goal is to hire the right people, connect them tightly to the customer, and then get out of their way so they can go build. The two-pizza team model is a practical application of that ideal. While these mechanisms keep us closer to the customer and allow us to respond quickly to changing customer needs, they don't guarantee success. If you're truly seeking to invent, failure is going to be a natural part of the equation. It's important to try to prevent failure, but we think it's more important to figure out how to embrace failure as a necessary part of experimentation and innovation. One great example from Amazon's history is the failure of our auctions business. We knew from early on that we would never be able to buy all of the products that customers might want to buy from us. And we recognized the only way to truly offer massive selection was to incorporate third-party sellers into our platform. First, we tried auctions. That didn't work. Then we tried another idea called Z-Shops. For a small fee, Amazon would let anybody set up a little virtual storefront on Amazon to sell their products. But that idea didn't pan out either. But we kept at it. We remained stubborn on the vision, but flexible on the details. We believed the long-term value that this marketplace idea would have to both customers and sellers, but remained flexible on the implementation and iterated based on what we learned. What finally unlocked this business for us was when we decided to allow third-party sellers to compete directly against us on our own website. Today, Amazon Marketplace is a significant part of our global retail business. Last year, over half of paid units sold were sold by third-party marketplace sellers. Several years ago, we tried launching our own smartphone, the Amazon Fire Phone. It did not do well with customers. In the end, we had to write off $170 million worth of unsold hardware. That's a significant loss. But that kind of loss is going to happen when you're placing bold bets and taking big risks. In fact, Jeff Bezos talked publicly about the Firephone failure in our 2018 shareholder letter. He said, if the size of your failures isn't growing, you're not going to be inventing at a size that can actually move the needle. Amazon will be experimenting at the right scale for a company of our size if we occasionally have multi-billion dollar failures. This kind of large-scale risk-taking is part of the service that we as a large company can provide to our customers and to society. A single big winning bet can more than cover the cost of many losers. What gets missed in the story of the Fire Phone is we weren't just trying to launch a new cell phone. We were trying to change the way humans interact with machines. You know, when touchscreen phones launched, it radically changed what we expect from computers. Everything switched from keyboard and mouse to touch. And we were just asking ourselves, how do we make things even simpler for that for our customers? One innovation in the Fire Phone was a gesture-based interface that removed the need to touch the screen at all. But it didn't do well with customers. Now, when the Fire Phone failed, we didn't have mass layoffs. We, we just reinvested. 
We learned a lot from the Firefoam failure. Many of the things we learned about building hardware, working with suppliers, material procurement, and so forth, are still helping us today in our devices business. And many of the people who worked on the Firephone brought what they had learned to help us launch Echo and Alexa, which I would argue have fundamentally shifted the way humans get information from machines. To remain a day one culture, you need to find ways to take bigger and bolder bets, to risk bigger and more prominent failure. And you have to create an environment where failure drives improvement, not punishment. Every failure is an opportunity to create something better for customers. Thanks, Stephen. That was great. So as we wrap up today, I just want to walk through a few key takeaways that I hope you'll recall from our discussion. The first is about day one culture, at least to us at Amazon. What that really means is being customer obsessed, making sure that our decisions can be made with high quality and high velocity every time, and being disruptive, experimental, embracing new trends. And I probably should add being willing to, to take risks and fail and learn from those failures. When we look at day two, what scares us more than anything, it's the risk of getting short-term focused, getting slower in our decision-making, and even worse, getting further from our customers. Valuing things like process or proxies over the actual outcome that matters to customers. So I know at Amazon, we're committed to constantly building and maintaining the right mechanisms to retain a day one culture. I can't say that they're the right mechanisms for all companies, but I do, uh, I do strongly believe that they're a great way to stay focused on customers and support growth and scale as businesses change and develop. Thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to seeing you again.